you're listening to Epitaph. In the 1940s, folklorist Richard Beardsley and Rosalie Hankey cataloged a new type of urban legend rapidly spreading around the country. The title of their article in California Folklore Quarterly gave the phenomena a name, The Vanishing Hitchhiker. In season one, Epitaph travels the roads of America to investigate the local variations of the Vanishing Hitchhiker legend to discover where these ghost stories intersect with local history and truth. This is episode eight. Resurrection Mary, part four. The story of Resurrection Mary, or at least one version of it, begins at the Liberty Grove Hall and Ballroom. In the 1930s, the Liberty Grove Hall and Ballroom, located at the corner of 47th and Mozart in the back of the Yards neighborhood in Chicago, was a popular place for big band and swing dancing. One night in 1939, Jerry Palis was at the Liberty Grove with friends. He noticed a pretty blonde girl who, though he said he'd never seen her there before, seemed to be there alone. So he asked her to dance, and she accepted. They spent the next several hours dancing and conversing. She said she lived nearby, on South Damon Avenue, and that her name was Mary. They hit it off so well, Jerry said, that he kissed her. And at the end of the night, Jerry offered her a ride home. But instead of asking to be taken to South Damon, she asked him to take her out Archer Avenue. When they reached the gates of Resurrection Cemetery, Mary asked him to pull over. Jerry was confused about why she would want to be dropped off here, but she told him, This is where I have to get out, but where I'm going, you can't follow. Mary got out of the car, walked to the cemetery gates, and disappeared. The next day, Jerry visited her address on South Damon. Though he recognized her in a family portrait, the woman who answered the door said that he couldn't possibly have danced with Mary because she'd been dead for several years. But just who was Mary? On this episode, we'll answer that question. Between 1850 and 1889, the area bordered by 39th and 87th Streets, between State Street and Crawford Avenue, was known as Lake Township. It was a separate, independent political entity from the city of Chicago. By the mid-1800s, there was a concentration of railroads in the area. Then, in 1865, the Union Stockyard and Transit Company opened a massive 475-acre market between Exchange and Halstead Streets, consolidating several small stockyards. By the mid-1870s, several major meatpacking companies had located next to the stockyard, and then, in 1880, the refrigerated boxcar was perfected. These events led to a giant expansion of meatpacking in the neighborhood, and with it, an influx of people that Lake Township couldn't provide services for. So, in 1889, Chicago annexed it. Although most residents worked for the stockyards or its auxiliary industries, these residents remained segregated by class and ethnic differences. The back of the yards neighborhood, south and west of the stockyards, were filled with Irish and German immigrants who lived there mostly due to necessity. The lack of transportation options meant that workers needed to live within walking distance of the factories. In the 1880s, as Irish and German workers began to protest the deplorable working conditions, managers brought in Eastern European workers as strike breakers and, in so doing, changed the ethnic composition of the back of the yards. In 1904, Upton Sinclair began a series of serialized investigations into the slaughterhouses. By 1906, he turned the story into a novel, The Jungle, which sold more than 100,000 copies in its first year. Sinclair meant the novel to be a critique of industrial capitalism. The protagonist, Jurgis Rudkus, and his wife, Anna, 
are crushed by a series of blows that suggest parallels between the treatment of animals and the workers employed to slaughter them. After losing his family, his health, and his hope, Jurgis leaves the slaughterhouse and converts to socialism. The characters were rendered as helpless victims, and many readers found the resolution to be, at best, contrived. But what moved them was what the novel had exposed about the safety of their food. It led to the passage of the 1906 Pure Food and Drug Act and the Meat Inspection Act, and Sinclair lamented that he'd aimed at the public's heart, but instead hit their stomach. But Sinclair had also succeeded in another thing, immortalizing the neighborhood for its pollution, squalor, and poverty. And the back of the yards certainly was dirty. Bubbly Creek, the stagnant southern branch of the Chicago River, was filled with so much blood and entrails from the stockyard that it earned its nickname from the methane and hydrogen sulfide gases bubbling to the surface as the waste decomposed. The water developed a thick, black, tar-like sludge across its surface, which, which in places was so thick that you could walk on it. On more than one occasion, it even caught fire. Many of the neighborhood's roads were unpaved, and few sewers existed, and trash always filled the alleyways behind and between houses and around the stockyards and meatpacking plants. Between the cattle pens, the rot of byproducts from the butchering process, the gases bubbling from the water and the garbage, the entire neighborhood had a distinctively putrid stench. And the stockyard's unique combination of pollution, erratic work schedules, occupational diseases, and low wages exacted a heavy toll on the neighborhood. But despite all of this, the back of the yards was full of particularly vibrant and cohesive working-class communities. Poles, Lithuanians, Slovaks, and Czechs organized around their own ethnic Catholic parishes that served as a social, cultural, and spiritual focal point for the residents' lives. It was in this neighborhood, this impoverished, polluted community of working-class Eastern European Catholic immigrants, that the women, who would become known as Resurrection Mary, were born. I began researching this legend the way that I've researched many of the other legends we've covered this season, by finding every report of a sighting, noting the details of it, the who, the when, the specific things that the witnesses reported, and then placing them into chronological order. And in doing this, we find that the story of Resurrection Mary has grown and changed since its earliest tellings, and based on that, I've come to conclude that the story of Resurrection Mary is actually the story of several different young women. I've come to believe that there are at least three and possibly four different young women, each with their own unique tragic story to tell. But while I thought this was a novel idea when doing the research, when I began reading about what others have written about the Resurrection Mary legend, and listened to the interviews of those who made telling the stories of Chicago's ghosts their livelihoods, I discovered that the idea that there was more than one girl whose story was being told within the Resurrection Mary legend maybe wasn't as original a thought as I first believed it to be. Richard Crow was a product of Chicago's South Side. He attended DePaul University, earning a bachelor and master's degree in English literature. And for a while, he worked as a city planner at City Hall before he quit that job to start Chicago's very first ghost tour. As a collector of unusual folk and ghost stories, Crow became a Chicago legend in his own right. And he certainly believed in Resurrection Mary. It's hard to come up with a newspaper article about her that he isn't mentioned in. He once told a reporter, I've talked to enough people decade upon decade to know that something is taking place, he said. And he was also one of the first to suggest that it may not be just one Resurrection Mary. She doesn't seem to be one person, he said. There's a problem with identifying her. I am fairly sure there's there's got to be more than one ghost involved, and this is based on interviewing people who were 
told by the ghost when she was around what her name was, where she lived. There's at least two girls coming back as ghosts. There's quite possibly three. And after spending much of his life investigating Mary's story, Richard wrote, There have been many stories collected over the years involving Resurrection Mary, and they don't seem to fit just one girl. There are too many loose ends. But this mystery could be answered easily if there were more than one ghost involved. Others, too, have come to this conclusion. Authors and podcasters like Troy Taylor of the American Hauntings podcast and Adam Selzer of Cemetery Mixtape, people who spent significant time digging into this story, have also posited that Mary may not be one ghost, or even two. She may actually be several different young women. So who were they? Well, one of the ghosts, I believe, has been identified. On another episode in this series, we spoke of Mary Bergovi. Not long after Mary Bergovi's death, her friends reported seeing her, recognizing her, along the side of Archer Avenue near Resurrection Cemetery, trying to jump on the running boards of their cars, or desperately trying to flag them down to hitch a ride back to the O. Henry Ballroom. A cemetery caretaker from Resurrection called John Satala, owner of the Satala Funeral Home and the man who'd handled Mary Bergovi's funeral, to say that he'd seen a girl dancing in the cemetery and then described Mary Bergovi down to the color of dress she was buried in. But while Mary Bergovi may be a Resurrection Mary, I don't believe she has anything at all to do with the other girls who, over the years, have become associated and intertwined with the more familiar Resurrection Mary legend. So far, most of the others have remained more elusive and enigmatic. To separate the three girls and to keep them identifiable, I'll refer to them by the way they generally appear. The Hitchhiker, the Hit and Run, and the Dance Partner. The Hitchhiker, as her name implies, is the young woman who seeks a ride back up Archer toward Resurrection Cemetery from the O. Henry, or as it later became known, the Willowbrook Ballroom. From what I can tell, this story has been around the area of the O. Henry since the early 1930s. In 1942, Richard Beardsley and Rosalie Henke wrote the first definitive analysis of the vanishing hitchhiker legend for the California Folklore Quarterly. In it, they cataloged 40 different variations of the story, and a number of the stories were in circulation, at that time, in Chicago and its suburbs. One version, number 15, from North Riverside, Illinois in 1939, aligns with the story of the dance partner, but we'll come back to that in a little bit. Two of the other legends that they found, number 24, which came from the Chicago suburb of Summit, was in circulation before 1933, and number 37, which was collected in Chicago in 1933, aligned pretty closely with the hitchhiker's story. To describe the story they collected from Summit, Beardsley and Hankey wrote, The narrator said that she could remember having heard the story before the World's Fair of a woman near the graveyard at Summit. She had stopped people and asked for a ride, had given them a Chicago address and disappeared. When the people called at the address, they learned that the woman had died some time before. From what I can find, there doesn't appear to have been an active cemetery in Summit at that time, but the nearest was Resurrection Cemetery, just a mile away. The second legend they collected was in circulation at the time of the Century of Progress exposition and concerned men who gave a ride to a woman who was, quote, walking along a highway. They put her in the rear seat of a two-door sedan, she vanished while the doors were closed, but following up the conversation which they had with her, they finally located her former home and described her so accurately that the parents easily identified her as their deceased daughter. The Chicago World's Fair and the Century of Progress Exposition referenced took place in 1933, 
which means that both of these stories were being told before Mary Bregovi's death in March of 1934. In other words, if these are the earliest reports of the hitchhiker, they're too early to have been Mary Bregovi, so they'd had to have been some other young woman. John Satala, in addition to his report of the caretaker calling to say that he'd seen Mary Bregovi, also recounted a tale of a neighbor who'd told him that her son had picked up a girl at the Willowbrook Ballroom, which had once been the O'Henry. The boy said, how far? And she said to keep going down Archer. As they approached the gate, she screamed once and then disappeared from the car. More recently, in 1973, a cab driver walked into Chet's Melody Lounge, a bar that sat adjacent to Resurrection Cemetery, demanding to know where the blonde in the white dress was. She had managed to disappear from his cab without paying. In 1979, Bill Geist, a columnist for the Suburban Tribune, wrote the story of an encounter two weeks prior when another cab driver, who only allowed himself to be identified as Ralph, picked up a pretty blonde in a white dress alongside Archer and then drove her home. She just nodded when I asked sometimes if we were supposed to keep going up Archer. She was just looking out the window at the snow and the trees and that. Her mind was a million miles away. A couple miles up Archer there, she jumped with a start like a horse, you know, and said, here, here. So I hit the brakes. I looked around and didn't see no kind of house. Where, I said. And then she sticks out her arm and points across the road to my left and says, there. And that's when it happened. I looked to my left, like this, at this little shack. And when I turned back, she was gone, vanished, and that car door never opened. May the good Lord strike me dead, it never opened. The night Ralph picked up his mysterious fare, the Willowbrook had had a special dance, a singles night, for those without escorts to come and dance the waltz and foxtrot to big band music, just like they had in the 1930s. In one of the variations of the Resurrection Mary legend, in the late 1920s or early 1930s, a young woman got into an argument with her boyfriend at the O'Henry and decided rather than spending another minute with him, she would prefer to walk home. She wasn't dressed for the weather, though, and she tried to flag down a ride. Whether she died of exposure on a cold wintry night or of being clipped by a passing vehicle and left to die beside the road depends largely on who's telling the story. But I believe that this woman, the hitchhiker, is supposed to be that ghost. As she requests a ride, travels down Archer, and disappears at Resurrection, it suggests that she could be buried there. If she was laid to rest there, she could have been nearly any one of the hundreds of young women buried in Resurrection Cemetery during the 1920s and early 1930s. In sifting through all of the articles I could find about accidents and deaths along Archer, I could find no deaths that would fit the scenario closely enough to suggest a possible identity for this ghost. But she doesn't necessarily have to have been buried there. And as no witnesses to this ghost ever suggest that she gave her name, her name doesn't have to be Mary. I am open to the idea that the hitchhiker could be the ghost of Anna Norcus, who died in an automobile accident on her way home from the O'Henry Ballroom after a night of dancing. That accident took place some distance from Resurrection at 65th and Harlem in 1927, and she was buried at St. Casimir Cemetery rather than Resurrection. Their route that fateful night did take them from the O'Henry past Resurrection Cemetery, so it could be that she returns to the place on earth where she was the happiest, the place where she spent her evening dancing just before she died. Those she rode home with that night are no longer around to take her, so she seeks a ride from whomever she can. And then she disappears as she gets farther and farther from the ballroom and closer to the scene of her death. That the place that she disappears from the car just happens to be near the gates of Resurrection Cemetery could be nothing more than coincidence.
Around the mid-1970s, another ghost began appearing along Archer Avenue near Resurrection Cemetery, the girl that we're referring to as the hit and run. According to one story, on the night of August 12, 1976, police officers responded to a report of a hit and run accident on the backside of Resurrection Cemetery. A panic-stricken girl had seen the body of a woman in a white dress beside the road. She had stopped her car, checked on the woman, and called police to come help. But as police arrived, the body simply disappeared. In May of 1978, Sean and Jerry Lape were driving when suddenly a woman in a white gown appeared in their headlights. Sean tried to swerve to avoid hitting her, but was unsuccessful. They prepared for impact, but it never happened. The woman simply passed through their car and disappeared. In October of 1989, Pam Turlow and Janet Kalal encountered a woman dressed in white near Resurrection Cemetery. The woman ran right into the road, directly into the path of their car. Janet slammed on the brakes, but it was too late. There was no impact, there was no bump to say that, you know, I'd hit something. But I know she ran out and I had to hit her, Janet later told Unsolved Mysteries. And on July 31st of 1996, a young man went into Chet's Malady Lounge saying that he had hit a woman in white with his car. Within a few minutes, another man came in and told the exact same story. Both men were frantic, but despite a desperate search, neither found a body, and there was no evidence that either had actually hit anything. Though I refer to her as a hit and run, we don't really know that that's what happened. It's certainly possible that whomever hit her stopped and tried to provide aid, but these encounters suggest, at least, that this young woman was hit by a car in the vicinity of Resurrection Cemetery and likely died beside the road as a result. While these stories may also fit with how the hitchhiker met her end, it would seem more likely that, since these sorts of encounters didn't begin being reported until more than 40 years after reports of the hitchhiker began to spread, this young woman probably died sometime in the 1960s or early 1970s. She too could have been nearly anyone. We don't know her name, her age, and it isn't even necessary that she was buried in Resurrection Cemetery, simply that she died as the result of an auto accident, maybe somewhere near it. And tracing her identity proved to be an impossible task. There simply aren't any reports that I could find of an accident like this in which a woman died on Archer Road, and the Justice Illinois Police Department isn't particularly responsive to requests for details about car pedestrian accidents in the early 1970s once you've told them that you're investigating Resurrection Mary. To be fair, I can't really say that I blame them for that. There is, however, a third young woman whose unique story has not only become part of the Resurrection Mary legend, but may have been responsible for starting it. The Dance Partner As we'd mentioned, Beardsley and Hanke had recorded a version of the story that they dated to the Chicagoland area in 1939. The narrator, they said, was from North Riverside, just a few miles from Justice, Summit, and the Back of the Yards community where the Resurrection Mary story often takes place. The narrator was passing along a story third-hand, having gotten it from a man who said that he knew the boys concerned very well. According to that account, the boys saw a very attractive girl in a white dress at a local dance. One of the boys asked her to dance, and her hands were so cold that he thought she was ill, and after the dance was over, they offered her a ride to her home, and she agreed. They got into the car, and she gave them her address. When they passed the cemetery, however, she asked them to pull over and told them, I need to get out here. She got out of the car and walked through a hedge into the cemetery. They waited, but she didn't come back. They went into the cemetery and looked around, but couldn't find her. Wanting to make sure she'd made it home, they went to the address that she'd given them. The boys recognized the picture, saying, 
That's even the dress she was wearing. The people told them that the girl was their daughter, but that she died two years ago. If the story sounds familiar, that's because I believe it's a retelling of the story of Jerry Palis's night at the Liberty Grove Hall and Ballroom and the girl that he'd met there in 1939. Jerry Palis was one of the first people to meet the ghost we've come to know as Resurrection Mary face to face. He's also the only witness who's come forward, having claimed to have spent the evening dancing with her. He's the only person to have ever gotten her name, to have gotten an address from her. Ghost hunter, historian, and Chicago folklorist Richard Crowe recorded an interview with Jerry Palis on August 15th, 1986, about his encounter that night. As we walked along to, to the street, uh, she says, well, you might as well take me down to Archer Road. And I said, what forest? And you live up here and here, where, where you told me. And she says, no, she said, I want to go out to Arthur Road. And as we got to the Resurrection Cemetery front gate, she said, stop. Jerry was confused as to why she'd asked to be let out so far from where she'd said her home was. But she told him that she needed to go and that where she was going, he couldn't follow. So as she crossed the road by herself, and she approached the gate, she disappeared. So in looking for the identity of the dance partner, the girl that Jerry Palis met that night, I stripped out the details of other encounters and stuck to details that I knew had been shared either by Jerry himself or that were attributed to him by Richard Crow. Jerry's encounter was the only one on record in which witnesses say that the ghost gave her name as Mary and that she gave an address on South Damon Avenue. She was described as being in her early 20s, so that's where I began my search. Young woman named Mary who lived on South Damon Avenue, somewhere between 17 and 27 years old when they died. Obviously, they needed to have died prior to Jerry's encounter with them in 1939, and they needed to have been buried at Resurrection Cemetery. I found a number of candidates, dozens in fact. Then I further screened that list of potential candidates down to girls who had died after 1927. You see, according to Palis' story, Mary had specifically stated that she lived on South Damon Avenue. Prior to 1927, Damon would have been known as Roby Street, but in 1927 it was renamed to honor Father Arnold Damon, a Jesuit apostle who founded the Holy Family Church and St. Ignatius College in what is now Chicago's near west side. So it would reason that, had she died prior to 1927, the girl that Jerry danced with would have said that she lived on Roby, not Damon. It was a small detail, perhaps, but I felt it was important to sorting out just who exactly Mary may have been. And narrowing the window that way left me with just a handful of people. Some of the names were already known. Mary Bergovi, for example, was on the list. But there was one girl, Mary Kovach, whose name I hadn't seen anywhere else. So I decided to dig in and see what I could find out about her. Within a few days, I had traced her genealogy. Through searching the genealogical records, I even found a Facebook group of her distant relatives. She died nearly 90 years ago, and I knew that there was no one still living who would have known her personally. She died well before even the older members of the Facebook group had been born. But one person that I spoke to did know of her from family stories and was able to share some interesting details that, it would turn out, suggested that she may have been the girl identified by another Resurrection Mary witness. But we'll come back to that. 
Digging through the historical record, I obtained a copy of her death certificate. From that, I contacted the funeral home who performed her funeral service in 1932 to obtain copies of her funeral records and the number of her burial plot at Resurrection Cemetery. And I was also sent pictures of her. Jerry described the woman as being blonde, about five foot seven. Her hair was about shoulder length. She had curls along either side of her head. He couldn't have given a more exact description of the young woman in the photos I was looking at. Everything seemed like it could fit, except she hadn't died as the result of a car accident. But while that's an important part of the lore of the hit and run, and maybe even for the hitchhiker, there was no suggestion of a car accident in any of the stories of the girl that Jerry Payless had danced with that night. And in the interviews, Richard Crow often left the door open that maybe the car accident wasn't as integral to this part of the legend as it first seems. Okay, the three major candidates, two of them died at a young age in their early 20s uh, in automobile accidents of injuries suddenly. And a third girl died of tuberculosis after getting so run down, getting so ill, and not taking care of herself as her doctor ordered that eventually she succumbed to that disease. And that was because she wanted to keep going up partying night after night. Decades later, in his book, Chicago Street Guide to the Supernatural, Crow continued to put forward the proposition that there could be a young woman who hadn't died in a car accident playing a role in the Resurrection Mary legend. Over the years, different people have put forward candidates for the title of Resurrection Mary. There are at least three young women, all of whom died in the early 1930s, all blonde, blue-eyed, all with the first name Mary, all who lived the same lifestyle that would fit the description, he wrote. Two are women who were involved in automobile accidents and passed on. The third is a young lady who, after getting so run down from partying, succumbed to an early death from tuberculosis. Any one of these three women could have been the prototype for the ghost of Resurrection Mary. The cause of death on the certificate for the girl that I was investigating? You guessed it, tuberculosis. And as more and more of these details lined up, I began to believe that maybe I had found the girl that Richard Crow was speaking of, the girl that Jerry Payless had met that night, his dance partner, the original Resurrection Mary. Ignatz Anton Kovac was born in February of 1885 in Nitra, Slovakia. He immigrated to the United States in late September of 1906, and in February of 1908, he married Alzbeta Nadovic. A year later, in March 1908, Mary was born. Ignatz worked as a laborer in the freight car shops in Chicago's rail yards, just north of where they lived in the back of the yard's neighborhood. Mary was the eldest of their five children, with two sisters and two brothers. The family attended church at St. Michael the Archangel Parish at 48th and Damon. Mary was baptized there, four days after her birth. The kids attended the parish's grammar school. The family never had much, but they got by. After renting an apartment from another family of Slovak immigrants, they were able to save enough money to buy a home at 5231 South Damon. Interestingly, in researching her story, I also found that amongst her classmates at St. Michael's Grammar School, albeit a couple years behind her, were two other familiar names in this legend. Mary Miskowski, who was two years younger, and Mary Brigovi, who was three years younger. These three girls were within three years of age of each other. They were part of the same community. They grew up on the same street, went to the same church, and to the same school. It's likely that they all knew each other. Maybe they even walked home together after classes. 
When Mary was just 13 years old in July of 1922, her mother, Ausbeta Kovach, died. Ausbeta was just 31 years old, and she was laid to rest at Resurrection Cemetery. With her father working long hours to provide for their family, even though she was just 13, Mary took on the responsibilities of watching out for her siblings, taking care of them, making sure meals were ready and clothes were clean, and getting them all to school on time. About a year after Mary's mother passed, Ignatz Kovach married the widow of his former landlord. Her husband had died several years before, leaving her and their six children to fend for themselves. After they were married, with only Ignatz's income to support them, the blended family with 11 children, and soon to be 12, struggled. The older kids took on jobs to help out. In 1928, Mary took a job as a maid at Mount Sinai Hospital, which had been founded on Chicago's west side with the mission of serving poor immigrants, primarily of Eastern European descent. Her sister Elizabeth would also take a job there, too, as a nurse. When they weren't scheduled at the hospital, the girls would also babysit kids in the neighborhood. And when they could, they'd earn money at the local taxi dance hall, the Liberty Grove Hall and Ballroom, which was well within walking distance of their home. In those days, taxi dance halls were popular all over the city. They weren't the large, elegant ballrooms like the Aragon or the Trianon, or even the O. Henry out in Willow Springs. These dance halls were much smaller, and to encourage young women to show up, the establishment would sell dance tickets, usually for 10 cents each, and the girls would earn a commission, often as much as a nickel, by collecting tickets from each patron they danced with over the course of the evening. These are a few of the details that, I believe, fit Mary Kovach into the Resurrection Mary lore. In fact, I believe that Mary Kovach was the Mary that was remembered by a woman who lived in the neighborhood as having been her babysitter. In July of 2005, author Troy Taylor had received a letter from a woman who claimed that she knew Resurrection Mary's true identity. As a young child, you see, Mary had babysat her mother, Mrs. Martha Lezak. Troy, in turn, spoke with Mrs. Lezak, and she told him that Mary had lived just down the street from her, and though she wasn't sure if Mary had a regular job or not, she knew that she was old enough to be out of school but still lived with her parents. Mrs. Lezak also said that Mary used to babysit her and her younger brother, Frank. She described Mary as a very pretty girl. She had light blonde hair with just a little bit of a curl to it. It was cut short, just a little below her ears. All of the boys in the neighborhood were in love with her. I do remember that she liked to go on dates, but I don't recall that she had one boyfriend in particular. Mrs. Lezak told Troy that Mary loved going out dancing and that her favorite place was the Liberty Grove and Hall, but that she would also frequent the O. Henry Ballroom on Archer. And then, in October of 1930, Mary was gone. The name that Mrs. Lezak gave Troy Taylor wasn't Mary Kovach, though. It was Mary Miskowski. I believe the simple explanation for this is that, more than 70 years removed from those days, Martha Lezak had mixed up the names of the two girls. After all, the two girls were classmates, and they may have had a similar appearance. But while she appears to have at least known of Mary Miskowski, as a young girl, Martha Lezak had lived at 5324 South Damon, just across the street from Mary Kovach's home at 5321. The other reason I believe she confused the two girls is that Mary Miskowski hadn't actually died in 1930, as she'd suggested. In fact, Mary Miskowski hadn't died until the mid-1950s. But though she wasn't killed in a car accident, as Martha Lezak remembered, Mary Kovach did suddenly disappear from the neighborhood in October of 1930 for another reason. Tuberculosis. In the 1930s, still several decades before effective antibiotics for tuberculosis were discovered, the only way to prevent its spread was isolating those with active infections, and the only treatments medicine knew to offer were rest, nutrition, and fresh air. 
the diagnosis came with the same sort of gravity that a late-stage cancer diagnosis does today. Death was the expected outcome, and those diagnosed with the disease were isolated from the rest of society, mandatorily sent to sanitariums to prevent its spread. Half of those entering the sanitariums died on the first admission, and of those who recovered and were discharged, half relapsed within the next five years. How Mary contracted the disease isn't known. It was a common disease, and all of her jobs brought her into contact with people who may have been infected. But Mary's diagnosis came in October of 1930, while she was working at the hospital. And lacking the financial means to go to a private resort sanitarium for treatment, she would have been sent to the Chicago Municipal Tuberculosis Sanitarium. When people with a fondness for ghost stories think of tuberculosis sanitariums, the first thought might be something along the lines of Waverly Hills. One conjures images of abuse, neglect, hideous medical experimentation, and death so common that bodies were hauled out in tunnels to keep other patients from seeing how hopeless their situation was. The Chicago Municipal Tuberculosis Sanitarium wasn't that. Dr. Theodore B. Sachs, a Russian Jewish immigrant, pioneered the movement to establish and fund the sanitarium to control tuberculosis in the city of Chicago, and specifically, to provide treatment to the thousands of urban poor infected with the disease. When it was finished, the sanitarium was a world-class public sanitarium on a 160-acre site with 650 beds in 32 buildings, providing treatment and long-term care to patients suffering from a highly infectious disease at no cost. Hidden from sight behind a grove of trees and a high Gothic iron fence, the sanitarium was a mini-city. It offered not only a full range of medical services, but also recreation, education, exercise, religious services, and job training. It was the first sanitarium to have an on-site maternity ward. Young patients would put on pageants and plays in the auditorium, and the buildings were beautiful. From July to September every year, the Preventatorium hosted a free overnight camp for children at risk of infection, with the only requirement for admission being that the child be undernourished. The kids stayed for an average of 36 days, during which they slept outdoors in tents, hiked through the woods, played baseball, and enjoyed picture shows and vaudeville acts. And while there, the kids were given free medical care, including dental work and eye exams. In the summer of 1924, 213 children had their tonsils removed. As to what life was like for the patients inside the sanitarium, the best information comes from the letters of Joseph C. Meyer, a patient in the early 1940s. Shortly after having been discharged, he wrote, The patients are very friendly, most of them between 18 and 30 years old. There were about 60 on our floor, and in time you got to know almost every one of them. On the whole, the sanitarium life wasn't so bad. We used to play chess, checkers, rummy, poker, or pinochle. Also, there were some fairly good-looking women patients out there. There was a rule against visiting them, though. That was a silly rule. When Mary initially arrived at the sanitarium, she would have been separated from the patients with non-active tuberculosis. She would have been required to carry a card with her at all times to indicate her level of contagiousness. The main benefit of staying in the sanitarium, apart from not exposing anyone else to the disease, was that they reinforced rest and regulated diet that patients were required to observe. Those with the most severe cases were restricted to 24 hours of bed rest, progressing to a once-a-day bathroom privilege. Others less contagious were still required to be in bed by 9 p.m. and take two two-hour rests per day from 9 to 11 and from 1 to 3, but they were given other privileges. Patients also received a high-caloric, high-mineral, high-vitamin, non-irritating diet. But this isn't to suggest that everything in the sanitarium was idyllic. The doctors were still said to be, shall we say, somewhat authoritarian, 
Fresh air was believed to be a remedy for the disease, regardless of the temperature of that air. As such, the main ward had enormous windows that were opened all year round, and the cottages where the less contagious patients were moved were built with open-air porches for sleeping, even in brutal Chicago winters. And though it's been suggested that patients were known to have hopped the fence and smuggled it back in, alcohol, in any form, was banned. And perhaps worst of all, they had mandatory daily sputum tests to determine if patients were still contagious with active tuberculosis. Those tests involved inserting a three-foot rubber tube up your nose and down your throat. It would be almost like you were throwing up or gagging, and then they would pull the tube out right away. To me, that was horrible, one patient remembered. They would just rip it out, another confirmed. Apart from the strict months-long regimen of strong antibiotics, which didn't exist in the 1930s, there is no cure for tuberculosis. The nature of tuberculosis is such that once the body is infected with it, it remains infected, and it was possible for the disease to reassert itself. After almost 14 months, around Christmas of 1931, Mary's infection was considered to be inactive, and she was allowed to return home to Daveman Avenue. By then, though, young Martha Lezak, her brother Frank, and the rest of the Lezak family had moved to Del Rio, Texas. Neither Martha or Frank would ever see Mary again, at least not alive. When patients were released, they were meant to continue their regimen of rest and healthy diet even after they were discharged, and for a while Mary did. But the world that she was returning to didn't offer much opportunity for rest, and for a girl from a poor family that was struggling even before the Great Depression, now several years into it, high-calorie balanced meals weren't particularly easy to come by. Despite her illness, Mary felt that she needed to look for ways to support her family, or, at a minimum, not be an extra burden. Mary found that, though she was considered to be well, she wasn't allowed to return to work at the hospital, and because people in the close-knit Slovak community knew of her illness, many were wary of letting her care for their children and potentially exposing them to the deadly disease. But if he knew of her illness, the manager at the Liberty Grove Hall and Ballroom didn't seem to mind. She was a pretty girl and had gotten a clean bill of health, so, as often as she felt up to it, she spent her evening collecting dance tickets. And the money was good. She could often make as much dancing with friends and strangers at a busy dance hall as her father made working a long day of hard labor at the stockyard. She often managed to earn enough money each week to not only help put food on the table and make sure her siblings were eating, but to set some aside to buy things for herself. Shoes. Nice clothes. But her job, if you could call it that, meant that she was often staying out until the dance hall closed, which was well past the 9 p.m. curfew that the sanitarium had prescribed. And at the end of the night, if she wasn't offered a ride by one of her dance partners, she would be left to walk home. In late July, Mary was beginning to feel a little run down. She thought that she just had too many nights out and wrote off her malaise as a result of the oppressive summer heat. And then she spiked a fever. Dr. K.P. Johnson informed her that her disease was back. This time, though, Mary wouldn't recover. Mary Kovach, the daughter of Ignatz and Ausbeta, died just after noon on October 5, 1932, at Cook County Hospital. She was buried near her mother at Resurrection Cemetery on October 8th. She was just 23 years old. If you go to Resurrection to find her, though, you're going to be disappointed. Despite her death certificate and her funeral record both indicating that she's buried at Resurrection, and even providing the burial plot number, a search of the online archives of the Archdiocese of Chicago Cemetery records from 1864 to 1989 does not list her name. They have burial records for her mother, Ausbeta, her father, Ignatz, 
and even her stepmother, but there's no record available for Mary. And not only that, but as their family was desperately poor, all four were buried in what were called term graves. While the common belief is that this means that they were disinterred and moved to a different part of the cemetery and reburied later, the funeral home that I spoke to said that that probably wasn't actually the case. They said that in reality, the headstones were simply removed and the plots were resold to new families, and when a new owner needed it, they were simply buried on top of the grave's previous resident. You'll find the Kovach family name amongst the stones there, but those belong to relatives. Mary, her mother, her father, and her stepmother all share their graves with someone else these days, and their names are no longer the ones remembered on the headstones where they lay. And a third girl died of tuberculosis after getting so run down, getting so ill, and not taking care of herself as her doctor ordered that eventually she succumbed to that disease, and that was because she wanted to keep going up partying night after night. Was Mary Kovach the third young woman that Richard Crow had written about? Was she the young woman that Jerry Palis danced with that night at the Liberty Grove Hall and Ballroom in 1939? I believe she was. As we walked along to, to the street, uh, she says, well, you might as well take me down to Archer Road. And I said, what for us? You live up here and here, where, where you told me. And she says, no, she said, I want to go out to Archer Road. You have been listening to episode eight. Resurrection Mary, Part 4 If you enjoy Epitaph, please take time to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you may be listening. Want a place to connect with us or discuss episodes of others? Join our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter at, at EpitaphPod. If you've got a few extra dollars, please consider joining our Patreon. There, you'll get access to Epitaph, The Others, our special subscriber-only bonus show and other exclusive content. Epitaph is an independent bi-weekly podcast. This episode was researched, written, hosted, and produced by Epitaph Podcast. The content of this podcast is copyright Epitaph Incorporated, 2019, all rights reserved.